Right, so this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, and the title of this sermon is The Christian's Liberty. The Christian's Liberty. And so particularly what Paul wrote here was concerning food sacrifice to idols. It's particularly food sacrifice to idols. So that is the main context uh, of this section and this passage. Everything that Paul says can certainly be applied to other areas. But what Paul had in mind was food sacrifice to idols. Not necessarily just eating food, but what is the use of the food that is consumed. And so here we see the close relationship, and I believe it still exists in the modern time in which we find ourselves, but the close relationship between the pagan religions and food, especially in the Greco-Roman Empire. And I would say again, this has not changed even as you and I look out in the world before us today. There is a very close relationship between food, particularly meats, and pagan religion. But for Paul, what he wanted to do was he wanted to establish the use and consumption of foods as it weighs on the conscience. So we all have to eat and we all have to be nourished and strengthened in our bodies from consuming what God has provided by his merciful hand. But what Paul is saying is that there can be a perversion of things and we have to consider how that impacts the conscience of believers. Especially in this particular text, for those who had just come to faith in Christ and they were coming to faith in Christ out of these pagan religions, common to Corinth and common to the empire overall. And so, again, this morning you have this very uh, exclusive context that deals particularly with the historical features of the city of Corinth and the Roman Empire. However, I do think that there are things that certainly apply. But what I wanted us to look at this morning is that we must, with Paul, establish that sacrifice and worship are vital to the Christian's existence. And what was heavy on Paul's mind is that he understood that this was also tied to freedom, that there is a freedom that one must enjoy in order to worship freely, in order to have a conscience that is not burdened or weighed down in the midst of their sacrifice and worship. But certainly obedience, sacrifice and worship and along with it, freedom is what Paul wanted for the Christians at Corinth. And it is certainly he has left it up to us with his writings by the Holy Spirit in the scripture to define what these things mean and to begin to nuance and help us understand how do we apply them to the modern church context. But I would also say that we have not yet gotten away from what Paul is really addressing, and that is the overall conflict. First Corinthians chapter one and first Corinthians chapter three. This argument that Paul is making here, similar to what we found in chapter 7, it's part of a larger solution that Paul offered. And he wanted this for the Corinthians because even what we see here had been tied to the factions. We not only see this textually or within our context, but we see this grammatically. We see this grammatically. And that careful nuance helps us understand the connection that Paul is trying to make by the Spirit to help us see that 
the effect of those factions runs through every single thing with respect to the church life in Corinth. He begins in verse one saying now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Well, you'll remember in verse one of chapter seven, he said now concerning the things about which you wrote. So there he's counter arguing against something they had set forward and something that they had written and arguments that they had made against him. And you see that that heightens when we get to second Corinthians, that they begin to argue a little more aggressively against him. But in this particular verse, you see now he has pivoted in some respects toward uh, the things sacrificed to idols. And a good way to read this uh, literal translation would be now concerning meat, concerning meat sacrificed to idols. So he's not just talking about a range of things that are sacrificed. He's talking about food sacrifice. And I think it's important because that's in there. And that is certainly what Paul is saying. But Paul uses what is called essentially grammatically a coordinating conjunction. Now, that's important because he's tying this section. He's almost braiding the section together in chapter eight with chapter seven, but also everything before. So it's not that Paul says, "Okay, this issue about marriage is done, resolved. Let's move on to another issue. No, instead, what Paul is saying is we have all these issues building up, stemming from the factions that Chloe's people told me about. And this is one of those issues. So I'm addressing marriage and intimacy and immorality within that context. But I'm also addressing liberty within the context of worship and sacrificing food. And so Paul ties it together. So therefore, because of what he uses and the way he uses what he says in verse one of chapter eight, now concerning things uh, or concerning meat sacrifice to idols. It is therefore all directly and specifically related to what comes before. So it is directly and specifically related to what comes before. What then does our previous text deal with concerning marriage and intimacy concerning biblical morality what does that have to do with idols well if you remember what we discussed when we talked about some of the prophets not only is it as we have said idolatry and idolatry are tied very closely together and that's not just a thesis statement as much as it's evidenced in the scripture for we see this in the ministries of isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, John the Baptist, and so many more. In fact, even Jesus himself. But even so, Paul is establishing against the pagan culture here. Infiltrating factions have caused a disruption in Christian liberty. Because that's what they do. And so Paul is establishing the need for freedom To have its day in the context of worship and in the context of fellowship in the life of the church. Now, we know that Christian freedom is assaulted in all areas. I mean, you know that just once you take a walk out from here, you recognize the world system and you recognize that they despise our freedom in Christ. And so they assault it at every turn. But Paul understood this, but he also understood that sometimes the assault 
may take a religious tone. Sometimes the attacks against religious freedom may look like worship, but they're false senses of worship. They may look like sacrifices, but they're false senses of sacrifice. And so all the areas, I would say, are up for attack. And it is why I believe Paul even addresses something as he does in uh, chapter 8 of this particular letter. He addresses food sacrifices. Well, why would he, why would he speak of that? That just seems such a trivial matter. It's all up for attack. If it can be perverted, it will be perverted. And therefore, it then needs to be rescued no matter how small it is. And so Paul said, I don't want you to be enslaved to even how you're consuming your food. He's not implementing dietary restrictions. He's helping them do things with a free conscience and a tender conscience. And so this is where our text actually picks up. Verse one, Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. So he says that, and then he follows that up with knowledge makes arrogant, uh, makes arrogant, but love edifies. I've heard this twisted, and I'm sure you have in so many ways. So our task this morning is to rescue what Paul actually means when he says knowledge. So he says we all have it. And so first of all, he's speaking to the Christians. He's speaking to believers. But he's not speaking of knowledge in just the general sense. There's a very specific way that he's speaking about knowledge, but he's talking about the knowledge one has concerning God in the area of food sacrifice to idols. That's the knowledge he's talking about. And so then what he says next is not applied to knowledge in general. Such as the statement, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He's saying there's a specific way in which one applies knowledge that could cause them to become arrogant. And he's speaking very specifically about this area. Rather, when Paul says what he says here, when he says this, he is applying it directly to the knowledge of idols versus the knowledge of the one true God. And how then should we abstain from the idols? This is the knowledge base that Paul is referring to. We all have knowledge. There's something we all know. Paul's not assaulting the study of scripture, the study of theology, contending for the faith. He's not assaulting those things. He's assaulting the misapplication of knowledge in this area. And he's saying if you misapply this, then you're just going to mow down the brother's conscience who hasn't yet come to terms with these things. So he's applying it directly to the knowledge of idols and how then should we abstain from the idols but rescue the enslaved from the power they gave, the power they gave. Because the idols don't have power. People have vested their idols with power. Trying to rescue people from the power they gave to the idols and to the meats that were sacrificed to the idols. Meat is just meat. But the people have placed their convictions upon the meat. And their convictions upon those things. 
and therefore have rendered those things in their own minds powerful enough that they become a not only contentious issue, but a matter of a person's soul. I would say we must understand that what this first verse is not doing, it is not pitting love against knowledge. It's not pitting love against knowledge. So many people do that across all arenas. And the blessing is in Corinthians, Paul is going to even define love for us. But here he's not pitting love against knowledge. He's not saying abandon knowledge because love builds up. It's not what he's saying. It is dangerous to simply pit love against knowledge and to use this passage to do so without the context in mind. So as to say that love must be held up against knowledge without exception or without qualification. And that somehow to come to the wrong conclusion that knowledge is against love and love is antithetical to knowledge. And if we just love people and love everybody, there's no knowledge base that drives that love. Or if we just have knowledge, we don't have to apply it in any specific way. Here Paul is dealing with the fact that knowledge and love go hand in hand. It's not that love is the highest virtue apart from knowledge. Rather, love should be the effect of applied knowledge, especially in the area of food sacrifice to idols. I'll say that again. Love should be the effect of applied knowledge. Love is not a virtue apart from knowledge. If anyone speaks like that, they're speaking from the devil when they make love undefined as some basis of virtue apart from a knowledge base that you should have. Jesus never called us to that. Jesus didn't send Paul into Corinth to say that. Love must always be defined in such a way that it is applied from the knowledge base and the starting point that God is. And God has given us his word and very clear commands that we must apply. What Paul says is directly here applied to the knowledge of idols. He's dealing with the knowledge of idols and the fact that they do not truly exist, but that God does. And the fact that we know that we know that. But he's also coming to terms with the fact that not everyone knows that as they should. So we can't assume that everyone does, because that would be then the knowledge base that makes arrogant. He says as much in verse two, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. He is not yet known as he ought to know. He's going to make this same point that I have laid before you in verse four. But as we look at this, Paul's caution to the church in Corinth was not to forego knowledge or abandon knowledge in this area. What he wanted was because think of the context. The context is the factions. What he wanted was he wanted them to seek to apply the knowledge for the benefit of other believers. I would say that's another good Test to see if someone truly knows the God they profess. Are they applying the knowledge in ways that benefits other believers? Or are they just theoretical? But what he's saying is failure to do what he has said here to apply that knowledge and build them up in love with that knowledge base. 
Failure to do this is arrogant. And it will tear your brother or sister down. But when knowledge is applied with the benefit of other believers in mind, it builds them up. Now listen, Paul is not saying to focus on how they feel. What he's saying is, I want you to focus on what is true. And then with the knowledge that we have concerning God's existence and the fact that these idols don't exist, we're trying to compel our brothers and sisters to move forward in that knowledge base. We're building them up in it. We're not condemning each other in this. We're building each each other up in this. And so possessing knowledge in this area about refraining from idols and things sacrificed to them with your nose in the air or in some stoic manner. Now let's pause. That is arrogant, but let's pause. That's what Paul was fighting. He's fighting stoicism. Which is the idea that we simply just endure life. Our hand is never shaken. Our facial expression never changes. And it is a philosophical belief that whoever does that the best is the most righteous. Paul is saying, I don't want you to live that way. I don't want you to live like the Epicureans, Acts 17. Don't just enjoy life to the detriment of following Christ. Enjoy life with ecclesiastical wisdom. But there is a detriment to hedonism. But Paul is also saying here that I want you to think about the benefit of those whom you are in fellowship with. To what benefit do my actions derive for them? In this stoic manner or this arrogant, uh, these arrogant factions that were in Corinth. And that's nothing to say of the philosophical schools and academies that were there. But there was no seeking to apply what one knows for the benefit of others. None of that existed. They don't exist in factions. Factions don't exist to try to build one another up. They exist to lift one person up and to tear everybody down. That's called worship. It's called idol worship. Knowledge must then be joined to love for God and for our brothers. True brothers, true brothers, if we are to build them up. Edification through applied knowledge in this context assumes what Paul has been saying all along. It assumes the sanctifying work of Christ in the heart of the Christian. Look at what he says. Verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, so now we're starting to define the type of love that edifies. The love that edifies is tied to a knowledge base. And how we apply that knowledge is with our fellowship in God. So I can't love you the right way and build you up the right way, essentially, Paul is saying, if I don't love God. So when people call on each other to love one another and nobody loves God, it's impossible to love one another. But he says in this context, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It's a simple statement. And then he ties it directly to the point again. Verse four, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know he's talking to Christians. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. 
Now, Paul, in this time, he's surrounded by idols. As he's making his ministry known, his apostleship known throughout Asia Minor at that time, he's surrounded by idols in every city, in every place he goes. But here he's saying in the face of that, in the face of that, how can we assume the sanctifying work in the heart of the Christian? How can we see to it that that continues? But also, how can we build them up in the face of idolatry? How do we build up our brothers and sisters in a time in which idolatry is having its day? How can we not give power to what the idolatrous grant power to in our walk with Christ? You see it even now that the things people have as their idols, they are giving power to those things. Those things don't have power. They don't exist. But the people give it power. So what Paul is after is how can we how can we help them? How can we build them up? But he's talking specifically about believers, specifically about believers. Well, the answer is. Love builds up, love edifies, but not the love of their sin and not the love of the vain things. Not permissible idolatry. That's not love. Rather, knowledge joined to love for Christ in the context of liberty in Christ. Knowledge joined to the love for Christ in the context of liberty in Christ. He says it plainly. He warned, he warned not, uh, not to only pursue knowledge in this area or anything at all as a means to its own end. We see that. Because the purpose of knowledge is to build up. That's the purpose of it. That's why you receive the things of the Lord so that you can build someone up in them. And you can very much tell that they're not doing this in court. They're not doing this or they're not doing it as they ought. And so here. Paul speaks to that goal, the goal of knowledge. And what this then implies is that. One is known by God and loved by God and pursuing God in the true sense of pursuing God in a way that evidences love for God. And then that implies love for the brethren, and that implies then seeking their highest good. But then Paul distinguishes here in verses two and three that true knowledge and love is in direct relationship to knowing and loving God. That true knowledge and love is in direct relationship to knowing and loving God and thus being known by God. It's not simply choosing to love God our way. And so he's trying to get the Corinthians away from that thinking. That you can just do what you please even with reference to eating. In the face of an adulterous culture that has rendered uh, their form of power to whatever that uh, practice is. What he says is, however, I want you to be built up in, in God. I want you to be built up in Christ. So what he's explaining then is the essence of true fellowship. Will this strengthen the fellowship or will it disrupt the unity of fellowship? That's essentially what Paul is after. 
And I believe that he's defining fellowship even, not simply liberty as its own thing. For this message is entitled the Christian's liberty, but we can just as much say it's the Christian's fellowship. That I believe that Paul is defining it and correcting it in the minds of the Corinthians. You'll see even a few short chapters away from where uh, from where we are now when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They're going to have an issue with their fellowship. They're going to treat it as though simply the activity, the gathering around about the activity has therefore consecrated the activity. But no, it's the heart. It's the motive. It's the mind. But to his point, when we look at verse four, essentially, he says it plainly. The idol is nothing. There's no such thing as the idol in the world. It is not a real deity, and it is not a rival to God in his power or anything else related to his nature. So Paul is not saying leave idols because they're powerful. He's saying leave idols because you've rendered power to them. You've rendered power to them, and you see the effect of that. So here, I believe that not only is it the so-called idols, and I believe by interpretation is definitely the so-called uh, idols of the time, the many uh, with respect to the mythological figures and uh, uh, the Greco-Roman culture and the gods that they had. But I think more than that, I think as we dig a little deeper, as we should, I think there is an idolatry problem with respect to men. And I think we see that very plainly. We see it explicitly. So I don't know that that necessarily is certainly. Uh, well, let me say it this way. I know it's not certainly uh, interpreted that way as we look to this, but I know it is implied because I know idols can be anything. I know here Paul is very much speaking about the idols of the time, the statues, the figures. But I know as we look a little deeper, we're starting to move into a place in Corinth where they're looking at people the way they would look at their statues. And so Paul is trying to correct them in all areas. The idol can produce no love. The idol can produce no fellowship or no true honor. For God is the only one in the heavens who rules over all things. And so as Paul looked to not only the sacrifices or the use of meat for sacrifice, he wanted to look at this. How then does the Christian eat if those things have been falsely consecrated to idols? That's what he wanted to address. But you then see what is really at stake. What is really at stake? Satan is so crafty in this area to bring something that is meant to be for our good, nourishment and food, and to take the sinner and the sin nature and cause an advantage in their flesh in a sense where they're already pursuing the idol, but then Satan twists in such a way where now there's worship and consecration in the simple act of eating for idols. I believe that Paul is fighting against him as well. I believe he's fighting against Satan as well. Verse 5, we must begin with reality. He sets their course to divine reality. He says, listen, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now he's going to say, let me give you the reality. Let me not give you how everyone feels and what everyone's thinking. Let us anchor our fellowship in reality. Look at what he says. Yet for us, the world doesn't dictate what you and I do and practice and believe and what we're convinced and convicted by. But for us, there is but one God. Yet for us, there is but one God. The Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. We exist for him. We don't exist for the idols. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. That would settle everything and anything related to the debate. We must begin in the face of idolatry with reality. You and I, we must begin with divine reality. This is who God is. This is what God has established. As much, as much hatred as that would bring in the heart of the, adult, uh, of the adulterer, they must be brought to terms with reality. And that's what Paul does. He brings the church to terms with reality. All this talk about idols, the idols don't exist. God does. He created you. Jesus to Christ, that's who you serve. And so unlike the idols, there is only one Lord. And he, unlike the idols, is not simply a figment of our imagination. He's not. He is not simply in our minds. He is. He is the I am. And so in verse 6, what you see him saying is that this knowledge referred to in verse 1, if not applied, it will only make arrogant. It will only make arrogant. So he's not talking about the acquiring of knowledge. He's talking about failure to apply the knowledge that you have in the appropriate way. That's what makes arrogant. That's what will not edify. But also if applied without discretion entirely. So there's a discernment, a discretion that that is uh, accompanying knowledge. Then the conscience of others can be weakened. I would say this because I believe Paul says it. In verse six as well, he establishes God's existence, but also our dependency on him for all things. He also establishes God's supremacy. So what then do we do to reach a, 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 a culture or a people who are handed over to idolatry? You have to bring them to terms with God's existence and their dependency on him because they are dependent on him. But you also have to establish his supremacy, that he is the one who will reign supreme. No matter what you're seeing now, because think about it. I believe that the greatest thing that plagued the Corinthians to this point is that they walked by sight, not by faith. They were walking by sight. They saw people. They worshiped them. They saw food meant for idols. And they ate without discretion or they ate in such a way where they were not thinking about the others around them so as to then sin against the conscience of others around them 
because they were doing things without thinking about why those things should be done. And if you walk by sight, it will throw off your motives. It will throw off your motives and your convictions when you walk by faith, no matter what's happening around you. No matter what your eyes can see, you then trust what will be the result. But I believe that Paul anchors them to reality in this passage because they have not been walking in reality. They have been walking in figments of their own imagination. I also believe that that is what plagues much of the confessing church today. They do what they do based on their feelings and imaginations. It's not based on conviction. It's not based on the word of God says we ought to do this, this, and this. It's I feel this way. I think this works. Uh, This result has had this outcome. They're looking for happiness, not blessedness in the sense that I'm moving in the conviction of the Lord. And therefore, I have a joy that he will bring to pass what he will believe that we have to go there because Paul brings Jesus up. He says, you exist for him. You exist for him. But here is the issue again. Paul is also clear. Not everyone believes this. We know that from the people in the world, but within the context of the church, not everyone at all times acts as though this is the truth. And then there's some who believe it, know it and try to act in concert with it. And what Paul is going to deal with in the next section is not everyone understands the implications of these things before them. That they certainly have a faith that is vested in what Christ has accomplished, but in their sanctification, they're not visiting with the implications of their actions at all times. And Paul is very much speaking to individuals who are religious, but also individuals who are trying to live their lives in the context of their cities around them. And so he's helping them understand that you have to visit with the implications, not just for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ, what they see. So next time, when we look at the verses that follow, verses 7 to 13, we're going to look at what Paul says concerning how this knowledge should be applied in that very specific area of consuming foods, sacrifice, to idols. Today we look more at how then do we have this knowledge base and then apply it, but we're going to look in the more specific sense. How then do we apply it when one begins to sit down and actually eat their food? Let's pray.